You're listening to What's Wellbeing Got to Do With It, a podcast from the What Works Centre for Wellbeing. In this week's episode, Claire Fisher, Centre Associate and Policy Specialist, asks, What has wellbeing got to do with policy? And that is a matter at the heart of politics and policy making. And if you don't care about that, well, why are you there? You've got to be thinking about what is it like to be living in Britain today? And the policy, your work on policy, in a sense, helps you to define how on earth you're going to deliver everything you said you wanted to do with and to the country or, or the world. I think you will really struggle to find anyone that disagrees that improving well-being and reducing well-being inequalities shouldn't be the goal of society. In February 2020, the What Works Centre for Wellbeing produced a report, Wellbeing Evidence at the heart of policy. And it got me wondering, what does well-being have to do with policy? The report says that there's been a quiet revolution in the UK of an evidence-informed movement spanning at least 50 years, sweeping well-being into the policy landscape as a relevant, credible and measurable way to connect policy goals and policy outcomes in a way that matters to people's lives. So I wanted to find out a bit more. What is policy? How does it get made? How do we measure the things that matter? And what difference does it make? To help me answer these questions, I tracked down someone who spent a lot of their career working right at the heart of government. My name is Ed Whiting. I'm the Director of Strategy over at the Wellcome Trust. Um, and then in previous life, I was a civil servant for around 13 years in lots of different government departments, Ministry of Justice, Treasury, um, and number 10 as well. I know the policy process seems like this mysterious kind of magic that happens uh, behind closed doors. And you literally spent quite a lot of your career behind that very famous number 10 door. So can you tell us what does policy making look like from the inside? Sure. So, I mean, I think it's, 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 it's both very hard and very easy to describe what on earth policy is. In a sense, the, the, the simplest way of thinking about it, um, particularly in the British context, is, you know, you make a set of promises when you run for an election, you, you, you have a manifesto, and, and the policy, your work on policy, in a sense, helps you to define how on earth you're going to deliver everything you said you wanted to do uh, with and to the country or, or the world in this, in this set of political promises. Um, and it helps you to work with different people uh, and, and sort of form kind of approaches and deal with trade-offs particularly. Um, and then I think particularly with policy, it also, as a technique, it helps you to say, if you do X, then Y will happen. It helps you to sort of anticipate um, impacts and then, and then sort of bring together interdependencies. Uh, and then, then ultimately, it sort of helps, to, it helps you to set a kind of way forward and a way of getting something done that eventually realises a very specific outcome. I imagine that policymakers spend a lot of their time grappling with this tension between long-term priorities and short-term crises and how you make the decisions about different policy approaches. I'm imagining that that framing really matters. So it's a really, I think it's a really good point. And I, I think that the first bit is partly in how you frame a political programme. So at the very start of it, what are you trying to achieve as a government, as a, as a political party or, or whatever grouping you are? Um, and the way you describe that also then sets up how your government might work. So, for instance, in 2019, um, the Conservative manifesto was certainly on the more transactional end of manifestos. And it had a set of things like we're going to hire this number of police. We're going to build this number of hospitals. Um, and it didn't talk as much about the outcomes that, that would come from that because they were sort of inferred. 
Uh, and so, you know, if, if that then makes the delivery of that manifesto very, very simple, because you just think, well, okay, how on earth do I get all the stuff together to make sure that, um, you know, make sure these hospitals get built or these, these police officers get hired. Um, in other governments and other times, they've had much more complex ways of describing policies where they've been saying, you know, if you are in this area or you are suffering from this condition, we want you to have this outcome. And then actually as a policy process, you need to put together lots of different ways of getting there and figure out which one's the best way to do it. Talking to Ed made me realise just how complex the policymaking process is and how crucial it must be to have really good evidence. So I was delighted to have the opportunity to chat to John Pullinger, who as the National Statistician oversaw the development and implementation of wellbeing measures into the ONS dataset. I wanted to understand more about the work of the ONS and how the data they produce feeds into the policy making process. Well, maybe I'll start with how ONS began. I mean, ONS began in um, 1941 when Winston Churchill was struggling to work out how to make the right decisions to, to um, direct the war effort. And he said that the utmost confusion is caused when people argue on different numbers. We need one set of numbers that we can accept and use without question to guide our decision making. So, I mean, fundamentally, the ONS has always been at the heart of policy making, creating the numbers that enables us as a country to make good choices about our future. So I suppose the question then is, how do we decide what to measure? Well, I think fundamentally to me, we are creating the statistics in order to help the country make better decisions. So we are driven by the choices that are in front of the country. And inevitably, a lot of those choices are economic. Um, we need to fund public services. We need to make sure that um, everything works and we have the, the resources to do that. But we also need to have a functioning society to think about issues like health, um, employment, um, uh, crime, and what we now say as, as well-being. Um, and as well as that, we need to understand the environment and what we're doing to the world around us, whether that's likely to be sustainable for the future. You've talked about crime and um, economics, and we can imagine how these things get measured. How do you measure well-being in statistics? Well, what I think was um, groundbreaking and was the most critical element of what Jill and the team at ONS did at that time was they asked people um, very straightforwardly, what are the things that matter to you in your lives? And uh, that was what directed the system of measurement that went into well-being. Um, so an evidence-based approach to making the evidence, actually. Absolutely, yes. And there was a, a big public consultation. I mean, lots of opportunities to interact with people in small groups or individually to really kind of worry away at. So what are the things we should care about? And therefore, what are the things we should measure? So the measurement was driven very much by the, um, the interests and concerns of people up and down the UK. It was so refreshing to realise that the wellbeing measures were so driven by people that they'd been developed from the ground up. But I wondered how different the things that ended up being measured were from the kind of things that central government departments might be measuring anyway. And to try and understand a bit about that, I had a chat to Deborah Hardoon, who's the head of evidence at the What Works Centre for Wellbeing. 
Now, Deborah was the author of the report that got me started out on this quest. So I knew she would have interesting things to add. The really new measure that the wellbeing framework introduces is this aspect of subjective wellbeing, because a lot of the other indicators are things that different ministries or different departments will have had as their objectives anyway. Um, things like unemployment rates. We know unemployment is bad for well-being, but that's something anyway that is targeted as a as an important objective policy. And that's a really important democratic way of saying to people that live in the UK, we want to hear from you what matters. We're not going to presuppose what you want, whether you want this infrastructure project or whether you want this green space in your environment. We're going to ask you how you feel about your life as a result of the things that are happening to you and as a result of your own experiences. Um, So not only is that a really important message that people's own kind of views and experiences really matter, but it also means that every individual has a story to tell and that we don't treat people in the UK as one you know, mass of people that are experienced a certain thing, but we can look at inequalities, we can look at the distribution of people's experiences, and we can identify people that are in really struggling in places that we hadn't suspected there might be people that were struggling. And we can identify things like the fact that people in their 40s and 50s actually systematically show that they have on average lower levels of well-being than other age groups in the population. It's clear that the idea of measuring well-being and gathering well-being evidence is really gathering traction within central government policymaking spaces. But having relied just on GDP for so long, did we really need to do more? John Pullinger at the ONS was clear that we did. I mean, GDP has been a really good, sure guide to policy over many generations, but it never quite succeeds on its own. And even if it is succeeding on its own, you need other data to check on what the consequences might be. Um, And I think this whole idea of building back better that we're talking about now is not about the pursuit of economic growth. Although, of course, we need that in order to pay for public services and deal with the debts that have been racked up. But what is happening to our environment, air pollution, all of these other things, what is happening to our health? How are we creating something that is sustainable for the future? And, and particularly what's happening to our mental health? I mean, how are we feeling as, as individuals about what the future holds for us? How, how well are we feeling optimistic about our place in, in the world? And that is a matter at the heart of politics and policymaking. And if you don't care about that, well, why are you there? You've got to be thinking about what is it like to be living in Britain today. And you need more than economics to give you an answer to that question. It's so good to hear John talk so enthusiastically about the use and development of statistics within government. And really useful then to hear from Ed about how that evidence gets integrated into the policymaking process. And I think policymakers are often very keen to do the right thing and to base their policymaking on evidence. You know, we're talking about what works today how do you think the evidence gets integrated into the policy making process in practice? 
Yeah, so there's a, there's a lot of debate about this at the minute around the levelling up work and reframing the way the Treasury makes decisions about how to spend money. Um, and so, you know, in, in various bits of government, there are guides to how to do this. So in the Treasury, for instance, there's the thing called the Green Book, which sets uh, the parameters of how they make decisions about weighing up the benefits for particular policy, a particular proposition before you commit the money. And it has to satisfy particular requirements. Um, so, you know, that, that, that part of how you do it in practice, sometimes you've got a book that tells you how to do it and says you need to stack up all these things. Sometimes you need to take a sort of much more, uh, I think, sort of almost bottom up, built from scratch approach and say, well, what are the, what are the things that matter here? Um, ultimately, one really important thing is that the process of making decisions, particularly in the British government, is a way of is, is a mechanism of effectively writing down everything on a piece of paper, putting a decision to a minister and a minister, government minister going yes or no, or I'll do this or I'll do that. And the process of creating these things called submissions that frame a particular decision is the life of government. And that's why civil servants often get completely obsessed with writing minutes and, and bureaucracy, because that's the way that you bring all these interests together. Uh, often you'll have a, a submission that's brought together by a team of civil servants that, as I say, throws all of those interests together, navigates the tension and puts a clear recommendation. Um, and then often the political gang will say, yeah, that, that looks good or that, that fits or it makes nothing to add here. Sometimes they'll say, yeah, but hang on a minute. We, you know, we promised this or actually this is where our party is headed or, or this is a political sort of thing like we're about to lose this vote or, or we could win a vote with this. You know, that, that's where that context becomes really important. And then a minister will draw that all together. But also, I think another part of it is, you know, all of these people are people living their lives. So I've seen, it's, it's rarely as simple as sticking a, a minute in a box and a minister going yes or no. There'll be the minister's own experience. There'll be a discussion he or she might have with their officials or their political advisors. There could be a visit they've done to a, you know, I worked on floods quite a lot, for instance, and you'd always have someone who'd just been to a flood affected area and going, no, 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 I've got the answer to this one because I was told it by a farmer and they're right. Um, and then you also have the direct kind of things that they might be hearing from their constituents or from lobby groups or, or different interests. Um, and, and, and essentially the minister's job is to sort of internalize all those things, both informal and formal, debate them. And often there is a debate about the different trade-offs and should we do A, should we do B? Um, sometimes, as you say, it's a very binary decision. Should we do HS2 or not? Or should HS2 go to Leeds or not? Um, and then you have to kind of work through what, what the right way is about it. But essentially, you know, much of government is just people having these debates and trying to work out how to navigate and reconcile these, these tensions. Ed had really helped me understand the messy political realities of policymaking. And then Deborah showed me how well-being fitted into that context. There's a, a little bit around semantics here. So in the report, we also showcase a few other frameworks or words that can be used to an extent interchangeably with well-being. So we've got people talking about quality of life, we've got people talking about social value, talking about public value. It's about being really explicit about what you want to achieve through a given policy, a programme and intervention and putting that there up front on the table as the agenda and as the strategic goal of what you're trying to do. I think it's very easy to add on well-being and to talk about the kind of added benefits to health, to the environment, to employment or whatever, when the goal is something else. Let's say, for example, it's economic and say, okay, and then there are these 
um, kind of side benefits to other areas of our lives. But if you do that, you really do miss the point and you miss the really great opportunities you have to invest in policies and programs and interventions that are going to upfront and explicitly be the best place to improve well-being. Um, so the, the real benefit is that well-being is a shared objective. I think you will really struggle to find anyone that disagrees that improving well-being and reducing well-being inequalities shouldn't be the goal of society. The UK government seems to be leading the way in using well-being as a measure for government policy, but I was keen to look further afield and learn from other examples. So I was delighted to hear from Margaret Freeling about her experience of uh, using a well-being lens in New Zealand. I'm Margrethe Freeling. I'm originally from the Netherlands, um, but for the last 10 years I've worked in New Zealand. Um, so I've worked for their national um, statistics agency, that's New Zealand, to work on their well-being, uh, the development of their well-being metrics. Um, and then, so my interest has always really been on how to make sure that these well-being metrics get incorporated in the real policy process. As well, can you just talk us a little bit about the kind of things that were yep. being measured? Absolutely. So New Zealand has been working on a well-being evidence approach for a long time. Um, for more than 15 years, New Zealand has been busy developing broader measures of societal progress. Um, so including social, environmental and economic um, indicators of progress. Their living standards framework is based on the OECD well-being framework, and it includes measures of current well-being as well as our resources for future well-being. Mm. Now those, um, I think that notion of intergenerational well-being is really key to the New Zealand approach. So at the centre of the New Zealand Living Standards Framework are four capitals um, that we need to sustain future well-being. So there are human capital, environmental capital, financial capital and social capital. Or in other words, how do we look after our people, the environment, our money and our communities. So I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about how that changes the way that you make policy. You know, how does that kind of get into the system, into the government, into the people that are making uh, the policy? Yes, absolutely. So my short answer to your question would be that there are three main things that a well-being approach helps us do. So one, it helps us to more systematically apply a broader lens of what is of value. Mm. Then secondly, again, more systematically, it helps us to more systematically look beyond the here and now to what the ultimate goal is of what we're trying to achieve. And then thirdly, it helps us to overcome common silos and to encourage um, collaboration towards our shared well-being objectives. Mm -hmm. Now I say more systematically because of course it's not like policy analysts are now considering long-term outcomes or broader indicators of value for the very first time. Mm -hmm. But a well-being approach does make that consider consideration a lot more explicit and a lot more transparent across our key um, decision-making processes. I think it's really interesting because one of the things that we hear often when we talk to policymakers is this tension between the very short term and the longer term uh, goals as well. So I'm really interested when you say that well-being helps us look beyond the here and now. Could you maybe just tell us a little bit more about what that looks like? About how that works. Yes, of course. So I think what is key in the New Zealand approach is that it's a true end-to-end -end integration of well-being metrics into the budget process. Mm. Um, now, I know that there are a lot of countries that have well-being or societal progress dashboards, and that is really, really fundamental and really important. 
But for me, it's not enough. I think the problem is that very often these dashboards operate in the sideline of the real policy development process. So we fill annual reports with all these new metrics, yet nothing seems to really change. So to me, the question is how can we make sure that these metrics are really integrated at the heart of the policy process? And I think uh, New Zealand has identified a very important and effective lever in doing so by applying a well-being lens throughout its budget process. And I think that's not, you know, that it's not like we haven't worked towards well-being before, that this is a completely new thing that suddenly arrived in a way. It's also very much um, formalizing and making more consistent ways in which we have worked before, making it more systematic, more transparent based on a commonly agreed set of indicators. Now, so in New Zealand, so once those budget priorities have been set, um, government ministries are then asked to work together to put forward budget bids that go across the identified building priorities and to clearly outline um, in their proposal how their proposed intervention contributes to well-being using evidence as much as possible. I think that collaboration aspect to me is a really big part of this as well. And now achieving cross-government coordination is really challenging, you know, even on a good day. And what I, what I found really interesting is that New Zealand has gone as far as appointing ministers to coordinate budget bids and not accepting individual budget bids from ministries to really drive their coordination. So to just finish how this is, so the last step in that then um, is to use the Living Centre framework in monitoring um, and evaluation and to see what progress we are actually making. I think it's so interesting how often you're using the word system and team <laughs> and collaboration yeah. because so often actually in policy making we actually hear words like compromise or trade-off. Yeah, I think it, it provides a shared um, frame of reference mm. that we look, you know, that we look towards. I mean it doesn't magically solve all of the trade-offs that we need to make, you know, it doesn't, it's, it's not, no magic solution. <laughs> for the really difficult trade-offs that we, the challenges that we face. Um, but I do think it focuses us on, on shared objectives in doing so. And I think that's a, that's a very powerful, powerful tool in and of itself. It was a real treat for me to have the chance to talk to so many brilliant people about such an interesting topic. And I couldn't resist asking each of them what their vision of the future was. I think um, the UK has actually inspired a lot of this work. I mean, we've been building on a lot of the important work that has been has been happening happening in the UK and still are. Um, so what I find really interesting is how different countries are now starting to help inform and you know work together on this new approach as well. I feel confident that from a science perspective and from an evidence perspective, we're only going to get better at breaking down the silos between psychology and environment and economics and sociology and all those different domains that have also, like similar to the policy context, have also been traditionally more siloed. I think I'd like policymaking to become as open as possible. Um, I, I would like a world in which um, government's job is to more transparently frame the different trade-offs that we're all grappling with, um, make very clear decisions and, and justify them, but show a bit more about how they're putting together uh, those, those different sort of considerations and decisions and not be afraid to do so. Um, and I'd love a way of sort of making that evidence gathering process more contestable um, and, and inviting a much broader set of interests into it. 
Well, um, I'm always very hesitant to predict what the future holds because it's always full of surprises. But I think one of the really critical connections between the well-being measurement approach um, and policy making has been the emphasis on what works. So I think to, to think of what the future is and aim for that is fraught with difficulty as far as I can see. But to measure things that succeed and do more of those and observe things that don't succeed and stop doing those is a pretty good guide to making life better. Thanks to everyone we spoke to for this episode and thanks to you for listening. You can find all the resources and more information about this topic in the show notes and on our website at whatworkswellbeing.org.